6JN2. Hopefully you all got that. Um, if not, you know where to send your email. And, um, and with that, we'll go ahead and get started with the conference today. I'm going to ask um, Dr. Rich Comey to introduce today's speaker. Dr. Comey is a professor of medicine and the uh, section chief for endocrinology and metabolism. Thanks, Kelly. Well, good morning. It's really nice to see so many people interested in metabolism because we're going to have a real treat today of, of our focus on metabolism. So our guest speaker is Jerry Shulman. Uh, Jerry got his Bachelor of Science from the University of Michigan. He's from Michigan. In 74, he got his MD-PhD from Wayne State. He then went on to do uh, his residency at Duke, which he finished in 1981, and then did an endocrine fellowship at the Mass General, and then became a fellow at Yale, where he rose through the ranks and became full professor at Yale in 1996. Uh, in 1997, he also was, became an investigator for the Howard Hughes Institute, which those of you who know about this know that's a real honor to, to get there. Um, he's the co-director of the Yale Research Center and has been doing that since 2012, but he has too many hats to sort of describe and too many awards to describe, but among them, he's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a member of the Institute of Medicine, and also just recently was given an award from Michigan for the Guyton uh, professor uh, at University of Michigan. So he's a quite well recognized around the country as a leader in this. He has 435 publications, so I will not read them off. Um, but he's, uh, it's kind of amazing, those of us who have managed to publish once in JCI, to see how many times he has published something in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. It's really quite impressive. Jerry has pioneered the use of magnetic resonance studies to look at metabolism, and he's going to show you some of that today. This is really fascinating work. I will mention that the reason I invited him was in 2014, he wrote a really fascinating sort of, uh, not an editorial so much as a review of the role of ectopic fat in insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and cardiometabolism, which really changed the way I thought about this, and so I thought it would be really fascinating to have him come and speak with us. Uh, we had a wonderful dinner with him last night. He's certainly very engaging. Um, speaker and has sort of been around uh, metabolism a long time and sort of knows everybody. But we're really excited to have him uh, talk about some very common things that we see in the clinic. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's really uh, a delight to be back uh, at Dartmouth, see so many of my old friends and catch up uh, on science and uh, everything else. So what I thought I would do is share with you uh, some of the work we've been doing over the years trying to understand insulin resistance and this epidemic of uh, type 2 uh, diabetes. So this is how I spend my time. I uh, want to understand this disease. Uh, you don't have to be a diabetologist to know it has everyone's attention. And uh, here is an 11-year-old who made the cover of Time magazine. And she made the cover of Time magazine because she has diabetes. And you might scratch your head and say, why is this a diabetes in children? It's not a big deal. I mean, we see it in our, we've seen it for years. But she made the cover because she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And this has been a paradigm shift. When I was a medical student, you never saw type 2 diabetes in a child. And now, in certain parts of this country, we're seeing more type 2 diabetes in children than type 1 diabetes. Uh, this is the CDC. One in three Americans by the year 2050, if things aren't changing, it's, it's really uh, an amazing statistic. The reason it gets our attention, this is we look at the back of our patient's eyes, we see these kinds of changes. Leading cause of blindness in working adults. I keep my nephrology colleagues very busy. Leading cause of end-stage kidney disease. I keep my orthopedic colleagues busy. It's the leading cause of non-traumatic loss of limb. The cost to U.S. society alone, taking care of the patients with diabetes complications, now exceeds $400 billion a year. And of course, it's growing with this epidemic. And it's a global problem. So here's a world map. And we're going to get over half a billion people uh, within 20 years' time. And I want to call your attention to this part of the planet. So this is China and India. We're going to get close to 200 million people the next 20 years impacted by diabetes. And I won't have a lot of time to get into it, but we're seeing uh, when you visit these areas, diabetes, and we typically talk about obesity and the obesity epidemics clearly driving diabetes here. We're seeing diabetes in these individuals who are lean. And we're gonna, I'm going to try to explain probably the same mechanism, what's driving it here as here, and dissociate for you insulin resistance and diabetes from obesity. 
So, okay, so uh, we all know we make the diagnosis in the clinic, we measure blood sugar, uh, fasting, postprandial. Uh, the question is what's driving the hyperglycemia? And we all know about the beta cells of the pancreas. There's clearly, by the time we see our patients with hyperglycemia, fasting, or postprandial, there's something wrong with the beta cell. It's just not pumping out sufficient amount of insulin to maintain normal glycemia. But years, maybe decades prior to this beta cell dysfunction, we have problems here in liver where we have increased glucose production due to increased gluconeogenesis, the conversion of two, three carbon molecules. They come together to make a six carbon. That's glucose. That's driven mostly by gluconeogenesis, this process. And even before the liver uh, goes awry, there's problems here in muscle where insulin can't stimulate normal glucose uptake. So the, the goal of my lab over the last three decades now is really trying to understand the molecular basis for insulin resistance. So I would argue virtually every drug we have that we're using to treat our patients with diabetes, we're treating the symptom of hyperglycemia, which is really the symptom. We're not really treating the root cause. This is why when we write a script for metformin or whatever in SGLT or, or SU, this is a lifelong script because we're not treating the root cause. And so the idea is if we could understand the molecular basis for insulin resistance, then that would allow us then to come up with the best way to treat and prevent this disease. So as Rich mentioned, actually what brought me from Boston down to New Haven was a technique uh, called nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. I'm not going to uh, bore you with uh, all the biophysics of how this works. What I want you to remember about the method is I can do real-time biochemical flux measurements in a human. I can do it in a tissue-specific manner, so I can measure flux. I, this is what the raw data looks like. So this is, this is from a healthy volunteer lying in the magnet and on their back, and, I have, they're in a, and I'm bouncing radio frequencies off their calf muscles. And this is the signal I pick up. This peak corresponds to the C13. This is, this is, all of you have C13 in your body. 1% of the carbon in your body is C13. The rest is C12. That's 99%. It's the C13 that's NMR visible. And this is the C13 in the first carbon position of all the glucose, CL, moieties, and glycogen. So what does that mean? What it means is I can actually non-invasively measure glycogen and muscle. Normally, to do this, I'd have to find a volunteer and take a chunk of muscle out with a needle biopsy and then grind it up biochemically. And here, I'm just bouncing radio waves. This is a stable isotope you all have in your body. So it's a beautiful technique for human investigation. No ionizing radiation. It's non-invasive. It's just magnets and radio frequency waves. And more importantly, besides measuring basal levels, what I can do is I can infuse an isotope that's enriched with C13, again, stable, non-radioat labeled, and track, this is this glucose, the C1 carbon, and I can track it into glycogen, and I can non-invasively then measure flux, how much glucose is getting into glycogen. And when you think about it, the only way I could have done this before the development of this method was, okay, find a volunteer, do a basal biopsy, then do another and another and another and another biopsy, and right away, recruitment goes down to zero. No one wants to be biopsied. Uh, six, uh, and even if you could find these individuals, and they're out there who don't mind needle biopsies, the increment was below the precision of the biochemical assay. All right, so here we get beautiful signals to measure this. And so what's the question? It's nice to have a nice method, but what's, what's, the, what's the important question? Well, the, the question is this. So how important is this process in promoting insulin resistance? Is getting glucose into glycogen important? or a minor uh, flux pathway uh, that has to be dealt with. And so the answer to that first question was this is the increment in muscle glycogen. These are under conditions where we give glucose and insulin. This is postprandial conditions. So when you eat a high carbohydrate pasta meal, you're storing this energy uh, uh, or oxidizing it. And here the answer in healthy control individuals, when you eat a high carbohydrate meal or you have your patient and you're infusing glucose and insulin, most of that glucose ends up as muscle glycogen. And more importantly, in our patients with poorly controlled diabetes, this is where the big defect is. They have half the amount of insulin-stimulated muscle glycogen synthesis. So here's the problem. Here's a cartoon. Here's the muscle cell. Here's glucose in the bloodstream. Here's glycogen. 
and our patients can't get glucose and move it from the plasma space into glycogen. So the question now becomes, well, where is the rate controlling step in this process? And the reason that question is important is this is your pharmacologic target. And at the time we were doing these studies, uh, here's, and, and just to review this biochemical flux, this is, again, this is the major flux, is glucose to glycogen. There are at least three candidate steps that had all been implicated to be defective in the muscle of the diabetic patient. So there's the enzyme glycogen synthase, takes GDP glucose to glycogen. This enzyme in glycolysis, hexokinase, takes glucose, puts on a phosphate to make G6P. And here's Gus Leinhard's uh, favorite protein, GLUT4. And this is the protein that takes glucose and moves it inside the muscle cell. So they had all been implicated. The question is, what's rate controlling? No one knew. And we said, well, let's sort this out in humans by measuring, first of all, G6P. And if the block is at synthase, and some of you drove in to work this morning, you all know if there's construction on the highway, where that construction is everything, the traffic builds up behind it. So if the block is at synthase, G6P should build up. If the block is at hexokinase, glucose should build up. And if the block is at transport, there should be no change in glucose or G6P. So we developed, I'll show you quickly, a method to measure G6P using phosphorus NMR. And this is, again, human data. We can watch it go up and down with glucose and insulin. This is a carbon NMR uh, to measure glucose inside the muscle. And using both of these approaches, we showed that both G6P and glucose are down in the muscle of the diabetic patient when you give the glucose and insulin compared to the controls, implicating transport as the rate controlling step. So the take-home message is this is your target. If you want to fix insulin resistance in muscle, find a way to activate transport. And the prediction then is this is going to be the best way to fix insulin resistance in skeletal muscle of our patients with diabetes. And I think the important corollary to these data um, uh, is synthase or hexokinase are not good targets to go after. And again, I can tell you many pharmaceutical companies have spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to activate glycogen synthase. And uh, according to these data, that's money not well spent. And we actually had the chance to test that by act, uh, GS uh, uh, activator showing it did not improve insulin resistance in rodent models of diabetes. So now the question becomes, what's wrong with glucose transport? And it's been known for uh, decades that there's this relationship, again, of course, with obesity, with insulin resistance, fat and insulin resistance. And we asked the question, what about actually fat inside the muscle cell? And how do you do that? Well, here is a, now a method. This is now magnetic resonance imaging. This is through the calf muscles. Here are your two gastrocnemia. Here's your soleus muscle. And what we can do is, is, is measure fat inside, do proton NMR on this voxel in the soleus muscle. This is what the now proton NMR spectrum looks like. We have two peaks. This peak is the extra myocellular lipid. This is fat outside the fat cell. So the next time you eat a well-marbled Kobe steak, that's the marbling of fat in that Kobe steak. That corresponds to the fat in this peak. What you don't see when you're eating that Kobe steak is the fat inside the myocyte. This is the intramyocellular lipid. And it turns out this peak, the fat inside the muscle cell, is the best predictor for insulin resistance in every, virtually every population we've looked at today, sedentary population. We've done this in young people, the elderly, done this in children. The more fat inside the myocyte, the more insulin resistant they are. OK, so now the question is, how does fat cause insulin resistance? And again, this is a story that goes back to this gentleman, uh, Philip Randall. Uh, who first showed that when he took muscle cells from rats, he incubated with fatty acids, and induced insulin resistance in vitro. He was actually knighted for this discovery, so it's, it's Sir Philip. I think it's the only rat study that ever got published in The Lancet. And so this is 1963, and, and Sir Philip and his colleagues went on to basically describe this biochemical explanation for how fatty acids cause insulin resistance in a muscle cell. And it's a lot of biochemistry. I'm just, walk, don't get, I'm just going to walk you through it. And they argued fatty acids get into the muscle cell, increase the redox state, increase acetyl-CoA to CoA ratio. This, is, this PDH is pyruvate dehydrogenase. It's a key enzyme in glucose oxidation. This gets inhibited. 
citrate levels build up to inhibit phosphofructokinase, the key enzyme in glycolysis, that you block this. G6P then builds up to inhibit hexokinase. So it's a lot of biochemistry early in the morning. The only thing I want you to remember is if Randall is correct, you should get a block in glycolysis. G6P levels should build up. So we looked at these studies. We said, well, these, this is a beautiful mechanism. Let's test it in humans because these are all studies done in rats, done in tissues in vitro. What happens in humans when you expose them to high fatty acids? And we then use this uh, phosphorus NMR method to uh, measure G6P in uh, a, a paper. And in a follow-up paper, we used our carbon NMR carbon NMR method to measure glucose to see if it was consistent with this hypothesis. And I won't show you the data, but uh, you can look it up in these papers. And we found just the opposite to what Randall predicted. So instead of G6P going north, we saw it going south. And the same thing for glucose. So this, these data, these results, shifted the paradigm. This is no longer pyruvate dehydrogenase is not your target. If, if according to Randall, this is the PDH finding a way to activate this would prevent lipid-induced insulin resistance in muscle. And we're arguing, no, this is not your pharmacologic target. Somehow, fatty acids are more importantly an intramyocellular lipid intermediate is mucking up insulin activation of GLUT4. And again, this is the same rate controlling step I showed you occurs in type 2 diabetics. It's the same rate controlling step we've seen now in healthy insulin resistant obese individuals. And it's the same rate controlling step we see in our young, healthy Yale undergraduates who we study who have a family history of diabetes and increased fat in their myocyte. So now the question becomes how does lipid block GLUT4? And so here's a cartoon of the potential mechanisms. So, um, this is GLUT4, and as Gus and, and, and others have shown, GLUT4 needs to translocate to the membrane, and so it's possible a lipid intermediate is blocking the translocation or, or maybe budding of these vesicles or even intrinsic activity of GLUT4. It's alternatively possible that perhaps a lipid intermediate is blocking the insulin uh, signaling cascade. And so for insulin to promote GLUT4 translocation, insulin must first bind to the receptor. The receptor then undergoes trans-autophosphorylation, which activates it. It becomes a kinase. And what's kind of fun is Lee Witters in the front row. This is what I studied with Lee and Joe Averick when I was a fellow at the General, so full circle round. And uh, then IRS-1 is the key substrate for this receptor kinase. It undergoes tyrosine phosphorylation, which allows it to bind and activate this enzyme PI3 kinase. This is a required step for insulin-induced GLUT4 translocation. So we hypothesize that perhaps a lipid intermediate is blocking uh, this pathway, activation of PI3 kinase. And so sometimes we do have to get a little invasive uh, in our uh, subject. So here we're doing punch biopsy. It's the only way I know how to measure PI3 kinase. Here, healthy controls, we give them an infusion of insulin and glycerol, and we get a nice activation of PI3 kinase. And here, when we infuse lipid to raise fatty acids, we totally abrogate insulin activation of PI3 kinase. So this is now our current, at least my current working model for how, why fat inside the muscle cell causes insulin resistance in my patients with diabetes or my pre-diabetic insulin resistant individuals. And it's a, very, it's a very simple model where it all has to do with balance of fluxes. So fatty acids from uh, from uh, adipocyte lipolysis or ingestion make their way into the myocyte and they get into long chain coase, they get into this uh, penultimate step in triglyceride synthesis. This is diacylglycerol. It's a known activator of novel PKCs. And when the flux into the myocyte exceeds its ability to be stored as neutral lipid, triglyceride, which has nothing to do with insulin resistance, but it's a marker for DAGs, this builds up activates a novel PKC pathway. Theta is the predominant PKC, novel PKC in muscle, which are, is a novel activated by DAGs, activating a serine kinase cascade that leads to inhibition of insulin activation of pi kinase, decreased GLUT4 translocation, of course, anything else downstream of pi kinase. And I won't get into, uh, it's reviewed here, all the Studies, we've then taken this to the bench and used the power of mouse genetics to really uh, 
interrogate uh, this hypothesis. So we target LPL to muscle, we get muscle-specific accumulation of isoglycerol, muscle-specific insulin resistance, we inactivate PKC theta, we get protection from lipid-induced insulin resistance in the rodent. We can activate mitooxidation by upregulating uncoupling protein 3 in muscle. We lower DAGs, less PKC theta, less insulin resistance. And most recently, we've translated these studies to humans, where we showed in humans, when you infuse lipid, DAGs go up, PKC theta, insulin defects in insulin resistance, and we've seen the same thing in healthy obese insulin resistance and type 2 diabetics, DAGs and PKC theta are the best predictor in man um, who have muscle insulin resistance. So this is the, my view of lipid-induced insulin resistance in muscle. Liver is the same story. This is the other key insulin responsive organ, and we've shown that it's the same paradigm, DAGs. The only difference is a different isoform, PKC epsilon, is the predominant isoform in both rodent and human liver. And here we've gone on to show work by Varman Samuel, who's an MD-PhD with me, goes on to bind and, and bind and inhibit the insulin receptor kinase itself. So here, epsilon's directly binding to this site and inhibits the receptor kinase. And in liver, what the insulin uh, receptor does is it activates glycogen synthesis and it regulates transcription of gluconeogenic enzymes. And I just want to share with you a recent story that just came out this week in the JCI. We now have the final step of how DAGs activate PKC epsilon, which leads to inhibition of the receptor kinase. So this is work that just came out on Monday by another MD-PhD student, Max Peterson. Max uh, built on work by Varman. We actually took activated PKC epsilon. Again, this is what gets activated when lipid builds up. Uh, this is, again, patients' examples of fatty liver, which we'll be getting to in a minute. Fatty liver, DAGs build up PKC epsilon activation and inhibits the receptor kinase. And we asked the question, how does, what's the, what hits, what does the PKC epsilon do to the receptor kinase? And so working with Jesse Weinhardt, we did uh, mass spec uh, phosphoproteomics. We identified a novel threonine that gets phosphorylated when you add PKC epsilon. And this threonine got us very excited. It's the 1160, and I'll show you why it's so interesting. First of all, the threonine is conserved from man to fly, so it's been around for a while, and it sits right between these three tyrosines, these wiser tyrosines that are required for insulin-induced receptor kinase activity. So it's right in the proximity of where all the action is. So we said that's very intriguing. And then working with Stephen Hubbard, this is the only crystal structure I'm going to show you, and I'm not a crystallographer, but I just think it's too cool not to show. So Steve Hubbard is the crystallographer who solved the crystal structure of the receptor kinase. And so this is in all of us. This is the receptor. And again, I, I, you, it, I'm going to walk you through this because I think it's kind of fun. This is, this, is this, 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 this loop. These are these three tyrosines, the ty 1158, the 1162, 1163. These are required for autophosphorylation. This threonine is right there. And this loop basically folds in and out of this plane. And normally, when it's not phosphorylated, it's in the plane. This is where the substrate, IRS1, IRS2, goes into the catalytic pocket and becomes phosphorylated. And so when these tyrosines are not phosphorylated, it blocks this uh, compartment. Insulin binds, phosphorylates these things. And the prediction from Stephen is when this threonine becomes phosphorylated, it becomes unstable and prevents it from staying open. And if it can't stay open, the substrate, IRS1, IRS2, cannot become tyrosine phosphorylated. So that's the prediction to test this. We max mutated the threonine to alanine. This is in vitro. And you can see in the control studies, you add activated epsilon, you inhibit the receptor kinase. When you, mute, when you mutate the threonine to alanine, you have protection. When you mutate the threonine to glutamic acid, the kinase is dead. It has no uh, functional activity. So that mimics a phosphorylation event. So this is all in vitro. And then finally, we made the mouse. And so here's an awake mouse. The homologous site is the 1150 site. We converted all the threonines to alanine. We do, this is our gold standard. We give a mouse insulin, and insulin normally shuts off liver. When you give it a high-fat diet, it's insulin resistant. So here's our wild-type mouse, fat-fed, so the liver is chock full of fat. You give it insulin, no effect on hepatic glucose production. This is, this is in hepatic insulin resistance. 
And the same high fat fed animals, when they have that single amino acid converted from a threonine to alanine, have perfectly normal insulin suppression of hepatic glucose production, despite having a lot of fat and DAGs and PKC epsilon activation. So I think this to me is the penultimate step now in how lipid causes insulin resistance. And again, what insulin does in liver is it promotes glucose to glycogen, so here's glycogen synthesis, and you can see this protection uh, of a threefold increase in uh, insulin-induced uh, liver glycogen synthesis. So this is the take-home message. This is the simple model. Again, fatty liver, we're gonna get into it. One in three of our patients walking around the streets, uh, and patients, healthy individuals, have fatty liver. Fat DAGs build up and will lead, this is normal if you don't have fat in your liver, insulin binds to the receptor. There's no phosphorylation of this threonine, and you have normal insulin receptor kinase activity in liver. When fat builds up, uh, it's specifically, this is the culprit, diacylglycerols, they go to the membrane bilayer, they pull PKC epsilon there, PKC epsilon then binds to the receptor, phosphorylates that 1160, keeps that catalytic loop from opening, and you have inhibition of receptor kinase activity and hepatic insulin resistance. So this to me is part of the culprit, DAGs, both in liver and muscle. If we can get rid of those, we should be able to fix uh, insulin resistance in these two organ beds. Okay, it's the only mouse I'm gonna show you, um, but it's a, it makes a very interesting point, especially for the medical students uh, and fellows. And I always, I always like asking the Yale medical students, which one's the normal mouse? And they, they get it wrong half the time. Half of them get it right, half of them get it wrong. But so this is the normal mouse. So again, skin's pulled away for, uh, you can appreciate fat distribution in a mouse, not so different from humans. This is your perinephric fat, uh, this is the scapula fat. This, is, this little dark fat here is the brown fat. This is what keeps them warm. All hibernating animals have brown fat. This is, uh, it's brown because it's loaded with mitochondria and has uncoupling protein and converts energy to heat. And there's a lot of excitement, has been over the years, not so much recently, but some years ago, they discovered brown fat in the scapulary of humans. They said, wow, wouldn't this be a great pharmacologic target to activate and prevent obesity and diabetes? And I, I think uh, that still remains to be seen if humans, unlike rodents, have enough of this to make a difference. But the point of this uh, slide is not to highlight that so much as it is this guy up here has no fat not one drop of fat. This is a mouse model of severe lipodystrophy. This was created by Charles Vince at the NIH. This little mouse has virtually no fat. And what really got my attention when he, uh, Charles and Mark Reitman published this mouse was everything I had been doing was showing too much fat, was leading to insulin resistance, especially when it was inside the myocyte and hepatocyte. And, and they were showing, hey, no fat, and the same kind of problems with insulin resistance. So, uh, Mark Reitman was kind enough to ship some of these mice north to New Haven. Jason Kim, who was a fellow with me, is actually now a professor at uh, UMass, did clamps in these studies. And again, it's these clamps, this is the gold standard for assessing insulin action in liver and muscle, and all he does is gives insulin and glucose and tracers, and you can look at then insulin action, <clears throat> glucose uptake in muscle and liver. And what he found <clears throat> was they have severe, these fatless mice have severe muscle insulin resistance. They don't, muscles take up a fraction of the amount of glucose as the controls, and they have severe liver insulin resistance. They can't turn off hepatic glucose production. So the question is, what's going on? Is there anything to do with ectopic fat? And we measure CoA's and diacylglycerols and triglyceride, and you see this twofold increase in both fat in the muscle and liver, and more importantly, these lipid active uh, uh, molecules. So we, we got these data back, and we scratched our head, and he said, well, you know, maybe this makes sense. No fat cells, nowhere to store the fat, and the fat is building up where it doesn't belong, inside muscle and liver cells, and leading, I won't show you the data, defects in insulin action, piatric kinase activation in liver and muscle. So how do you test that? Well, one thing you can do in a mouse is to put the fat back. And so what we did here was take little pieces of wild-type fat, transplanted it into these fatless mice and ask the question, does this make them better? And it fixes everything. So you put the fat back and you have normal, normalized insulin action in muscle and liver, and the fat content in the liver and muscle cells comes back to normal. 
So the important lesson which I would like to impart, especially on the medical students and fellows who think about these things and see these patients, is we always have associated insulin resistance with obesity. And the point is it's not so much how much fat we have, it's really where the fat is located. And when the fat builds up where it doesn't belong, that is really the problem, is it builds up inside the myocyte and the hepatocyte. That's what's leading to insulin resistance and diabetes. And this is really, again, getting at the root cause of the disease. If we can get rid of the fat inside the liver cells and muscle cells, that will make a big difference to our patients. So these are mice. And again, I'm a clinical investigator. We do, as you know, a lot of things in mice. And you know, things, sometimes they translate, sometimes they don't. So the real question is, does this model translate to the patient? So this is the patient with severe lipodystrophy. So this is a young, she's 16 years old. She's on three oral medications. Her diabetes is still way out of control, A1C of 10% plus. It's just not doing anything. She has severe hypertriglyceridemia. So I'm sure Lee, who did lipid clinic at the MGH and other clinicians in the front row, will appreciate these xanthomas from her type 5 hyperlipidemia. She had triglycerides that were 20 thousand milligram per deciliter. Her, her plasma looked like milk or cream. She needed to be dialyzed three times a week to get rid of her chylomicronemia. This swelling in her abdomen is the liver, and it's taking up the entire visceral compartment. And the reason it's enlarged is it's chock full of triglyceride. And she has no fat cells, and therefore is devoid of this key hormone, leptin, which is where what makes the... Uh, um, the fat cells make the leptin. So when we were studying our mouse model of lipodystrophy, the team of Shimomura colleagues uh, in Dallas were treating a different mouse model with leptin and found that leptin replacement made improve the metabolic profile of the mouse with lipodystrophy. We said, hmm, this is interesting. Let's see if it makes a difference in our patients. So this was a collaboration with the NIH team of Phil Gordon, Simeon Taylor, and Elif Oral. And done by Kit Peterson. So we flew these patients from the NIH to New Haven. And we did, again, these CLAMP studies where with stable isotopes, we can then uh, and actually assess insulin action in muscle and liver and the fat cell, just like we did do in the mice. And what Kit found was just like uh, Jason found in, in our lipodystrophic mice, these patients with lipodystrophy have severe Muscle insulin resistance, they take up a fraction the amount of glucose in muscle as the controls, and severe liver insulin resistance. And we asked the question, does this have anything to do with ectopic fat? And before we did that, I should just say we treated them with leptin. We gave them leptin. They have leptin levels in the basement. We, we gave them two shots a day to bring their leptin levels up to normal. And here, they all were diabetic before leptin replacement on medication. And here, following leptin replacement, normalized glucose in all of them, and this is independent of any uh, uh, drugs. So they're off all of their diabetic drugs. This is just leptin replacement, normalizing fasting glucose. So we asked the question, what accounts? How is leptin doing this? And here you can see that leptin replacement reverses muscle insulin resistance. It reverses liver insulin resistance. And then we asked the question, does this have anything to do with ectopic fat? And I showed you we can measure fat inside the muscle cell. We can do the same thing in the liver. This is an MRI of the liver. We do proton NMR. We get a lipid and water peak. And this ratio is the best way to quantify liver fat in humans non-invasively. And this is what we find. So giving leptin gets rid of fat inside the myocyte. And again, huge levels of fat in these patients. Normal in our hands, about 2%. So it's about 10 times normal. And you give leptin back, and it just melts away fat inside the liver. So now the question is, how is leptin doing this? And uh, this just shows you that young uh, woman before. This is the, her huge liver before image, almost normalization after leptin. And it made a huge difference in her clinical well-being. And so here this is before bedridden and now after leptin, up and about taking classes at uh, university. Um, so the question, and I didn't show this slide, but the question is how is uh, leptin doing, doing this? Is it energy intake or energy uh, uh, expenditure? And we had the chance to measure both of these fluxes. Had minimal effect using indirect calorimetry and energy expenditure. What it had a major effect was energy intake. 
And these young women, this young woman is half my size, taking in 4,000 calories a day, because she's hyperphagic before, because she had leptins in the basement. And following uh, leptin, she's down to 1,000 calories a day. And that's pretty much the major mechanism, at least in our hands, of how leptins reverse in the ectopic lipid. Okay, so fortunately, that's very rare because it's a very uh, devastating disease. The question, what we all see in our clinic, is the type 2. And again, uh, this epidemic. And does this have this mechanism translate to the common variety of type 2 that we all see in our clinics every day around the wards? And so it had been known for many years that simple caloric restriction does make our patients with diabetes better. The question is mechanistically, how does this happen? And so here we took type 2 diabetes, and this is what I see in, in the clinic or on the wards, um, mid-50s, BMI of 30, 31. We put them on a 1,200-calorie diet and asked the question, you know, can, how, how does this make them better, and if it does, how is this happening? So here's plasma glucose. Here's our type 2s. This is the fast and hyperglycemia you all see. This is all driven. I won't get into this. This is all hepatic gluconeogenesis. Again, this is taking lactate and alanine and putting them together to make glucose. This is what the liver. So when you see on morning rounds your patient with fast and hyperglycemia, you can tell you're the attending, if you're a student, this is, being, this is the liver making too much glucose. And, and we, we can get into that later, what's happening, why that it might be. I spoke about it yesterday. But it's the, the liver contributing to the fasting hyperglycemia. And following the uh, just basically 10% weight reduction, you're able to fix this fasting hyperglycemia in all of these individuals after two to three months of this 1,200-calorie diet. And the first lesson is they only had to lose 10% body weight, so they're still overweight. They lost about 10 kgs on 1,200 calories. And this is the take-home message. And so again, virtually every poorly controlled diabetic you see in your clinic has this condition, and it's too much fat in their liver. You don't know this, they don't know this. Your liver enzymes are perfectly normal. And, but if you put a needle in, you're not going to do that with normal. But if you put them in the magnet and measure the fat, it's, it's five, ten times normal. And it's driving insulin resistance in their diabetes. And the lesson then is if you only have to lose about 10%, maybe even a little bit less, and it makes a huge difference on hepatic steatosis. The hepatic steatosis is small. It's a small pool of fat. It's highly mobile. Just 10% change in bite gets rid of the liver fat. And when you get rid of the liver fat, you fix hepatic gluconeogenesis, so this comes back, glucose production, which is due to gluconeogenesis, comes back to normal. You normal, normalize fasting glucose, and you normalize hepatic insulin responsiveness. This is the diacetyl, we didn't measure it in these folks, but if we could, diacylglycerols would be down, PKC epsilon would be down, that threonine phosphorylation would be, would be down. So this is the insulin resistance, you give them insulin, this is the hepatic insulin resistance uh, before weight loss, insulin's not working, getting rid of the fat, it, normalizes insulin action in liver. And again, I, one day we'll be able to measure that threonine, get liver tissue, it, it'll be uh, decreased. That's the prediction, decreased phosphorylation. And this is no change in any of these circulating uh, cytokines. So conceptually, this is uh, the message I want to leave you with, and I'm going to have one more story after this. But in my view, it's this ectopic fat. This is what's driving insulin resistance, fat inside muscle and liver cells, and again, diacylglycerol is what I think the culprit is. Uh, and there are many ways to get there. And we can all, independent of genetics, independent of our genes, we can all eat our way there. We eat more than we burn in our mitochondria. We build up fat and DAGs in liver and muscle, insulin resistance. And this is why virtually every healthy insulin-resistant obese person we study, adults or children, have ectopic fat in liver and muscle. And I showed you with weight reduction, we get rid of the fat, we reverse the insulin resistance. There will be these abnormalities in the fat cells. So I showed you the most extreme example, the lipodystrophic patient, um, and also the partial lipodystrophy, the HIV and, 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 and retroviral uh, uh, treated patients, they have a, an acquired lipodystrophy. They can't store fat in the fat cell. And again, if you were to look inside liver and muscle, they're going to have more fat in liver and muscle. This is why all the severe lipodystrophic, partial lipodystrophic, I'm sure you see them in your, your clinics, certainly the AIDS clinics, have, in, have in metabolic syndrome from ectopic fat in liver and muscle. Um, 
And the geneticists who are interested in the genetics of insulin resistance, the prediction is there'll be many genes yet to be discovered we either have defects in lipolysis, where the fat cell is too over-lipolytic, we're actually unable to take up fat and store it properly, and, and that will lead to this syndrome of relatively lean people and have ectopic fat placement in liver and muscle. Conversely, the prediction is you're going to see people that have genes that allow the fat cell to hold on to the fat. And sometimes we, we see this, certainly in the research uh, center, the obese adults or children, perfectly normal glucose tolerance, low insulins, and they have all the fat in the subcutaneous fat compartment. And we've done this in, in, in adults and children, two equally obese individuals. The resistant child has fat in liver and muscle cell. The insulin sensitive, equally obese child has all the fat in the subcutaneous fat compartment. So that's a protective compartment. Keeping fat in the subcutaneous fat out of liver muscle uh, is basically a safe place to put fat. And uh, we all, some of us, um, you know, we all uh, have used TZDs in the past. They're less popular than they are now, the thiazolidinediones. And the real paradox, which uh, I'll just touch on, is we all know the TZDs work on PPAR gamma, which are in the fat cell, yet they reverse insulin resistance in liver and muscle. And what we've shown is TZDs uh, actually promote, uh, by activating PPAR gamma in the fat cell, they inhibit lipolysis, they promote fat storage, and we've shown both in man and mouse that it moves fat from liver cells into the fat cells. And this is why patients who are treated with TZDs, the side effect, while it does insulin sensitize, lower glucose, our patients actually gain weight and they put more fat in the subcutaneous fat compartment. I don't have time to get into my favorite organelle here in this lecture, the mitochondria. This is where we're burning fat, and we've shown, again, if you're burning fat here, you could understand problems in the furnace might lead to ectopic fat, and we've shown, indeed, this is the case. So healthy aging, all of us, as we get older, unfortunately, there's nothing to do about this, but our mito are slowing down in all of our organs, and we've documented this using our NMR approach. And we've shown in healthy, lean 70-year-olds, as, as uh, our mitochondria are slowing down by about 25%, 30%, and this predisposes us to ectopic fat buildup in liver and muscle. And so we've shown in healthy, lean 70-year-olds more fat in muscle and liver cells. And this, I think, partly explains the increased prevalence of diabetes and IGT uh, in, uh, uh, that comes along with aging. So I just want to finish up now to talk about metabolic syndrome and, and the link between ectopic fat and insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And again, this is a term coined um, by Jerry Reven in his Banting lecture some uh, more than two decades ago. He first called our attention to the syndrome of insulin resistance and all the bad things associated with it. And again, we all heart disease. This is what kills our patient with type 2 diabetes, high triglycerides, low HDL, this is the dyslipidemia of metabolic syndrome, inflammation, high uric acid, PCOS, and high blood pressure. And the question is, again, the reason it's called a syndrome is because we don't, again, it's just a collection of things, and whether they're causal, related, or just clustering together, these are all common occurrences, is there any link between them? And, and there's arguing that there are just common things, there is no link, people have argued that Fat in the belly is what drives a lot of this, and, and others have argued, well, insulin resistance in some way drives all or part of these things. So we asked this specific question. Well, the first thing we see when we study our young undergraduates, um, uh, and again, what I love about these young, healthy 20-year-olds is uh, you, can, you can study, uh, we're up to about 1,000 now, and there's a bell curve of insulin action. You have some at the one end who are very resistant, one at the other end, very sensitive. They're lean. They're like these young people in the front row here, BMI 21, 22, nice, healthy, lean. But they can be, some can be resistant, one can be sens some sensitive, and the resistant ones have fat in the muscle cell despite being lean. And we argue this is the first thing we see. Maybe it's insulin resistance in muscle. That's the first thing we're able to detect promotes atherogenic dyslipidemia, that's the high triglycerides, low HDL, this is part of what leads to heart disease, by changing where energy is stored after you ingest it. So it just changes the pattern of energy distribution, and I'll, I'll get into that in a, in a minute. 
And so here, here's our Yale undergraduate. So we give them a drink of glucose, we measure insulin, we can calculate a crude insulin sensitivity index. And so these folks are sensitive. They take up glucose and pack it away. And these folks, by definition, are resistant. And we ask the question, is there something different if you're in this top quartile versus bottom quartile when you just drink a high carbohydrate load of, you know, a high carbohydrate milkshake? Where the energy goes, does it go to glycogen or does it go to fat if you're here or here? Again, here's, and so here's, here's to emphasize these are healthy young people, 20s, uh, lean, BMI of 22, 23, uh, matched uh, uh, pretty closely for activity. They're all sedentary. And all we did, we select the resistant and the sensitive individuals, and we said, does it matter if you're here or here when you take in that high-carbohydrate milkshake where you store your energy? So the first thing, abdominal fat, everyone talks about, we all know apple-shaped people are more insulin-resistant. Does the belly fat have anything to do with insulin resistance? And so here, this is, we can put them in a scanner, and, and this is an MRI, and, and do slices and quantify belly fat in these, again, lean, BMI 23, 22 individuals. Everyone has a little bit of belly fat. And this is what a three-dimensional lean person, the belly fat looks like in a lean, healthy person. There's a little bit there. Turns out it's about four, 400 mils, three to 400 mils, but no difference between the resistant and sensitive uh, 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 individuals in terms of uh, abdominal fat. So that's not what's driving it. We bring them into the uh, metabolic ward, give them these two high-carbohydrate milkshakes at 10 a.m. and 2.30. And again, this is perfectly normal glucose tolerance. You know, this is, again, they're healthy young people. But this is why they're normal glucose tolerant. Look at the insulin levels. It's huge. This is, this is two to three times. This is insulin in the resistant folks, about twice, at least twice, of, than the sense of, again, this is, Everyone knows this is why they have normal glycemia. The insulin cells are working, pumping out insulin. The beta cells are pumping out insulin over time. And I just want to remind you, this is what we measure in plasma. What gets released into the portal vein is three times this. So the liver is seeing somewhere around almost 500 microunits per mil. Just you have to remember that. This is what we measure as plasma. The liver sees three times this concentration. So huge amounts of insulin. No difference in any of these circulating inflammatory cytokines. So we've dissociated insulin resistance from inflammation in these young, healthy individuals. So the question is now, where does energy go? So if you're resistant to sensitive, how much is going to fat? How much is going to glycogen? And so we can use our MR methods to measure uh, these two fates of ingested glucose. So this is carbon NMR. And hopefully this will not be a surprise. Again, I, I hope I've convinced you when you have fat in the muscle, which these folks do, you have a block in transport. They can't get glucose into muscle glycogen, so there's a big defect in insulin-stimulated transport leading to decreased muscle glycogen synthesis no alterations in getting glucose into liver glycogen. So liver is still working fine in these folks. It's really just muscle. What about fat? So this is the change now. So the delta in the fat inside the myocyte, no, very, very little gets in and no difference. But here's liver fat. And this is now this uh, more than twofold increase in liver triglyceride synthesis. And so the question is, how is the liver taking the glucose to make fat? And there's this process called de novo lipogenesis. So liver, glucose gets into the liver. It's broken down to acetyl-CoA and then malonyl-CoA and then put together uh, uh, to make a long chain 16-carbon or 18-carbon fat. And we can track this with a stable non-radio-labeled isotope, just heavy water, deuterium in the water. It's a very safe, stable isotope. And we can track that deuterium as it's incorporated into the backbone of the fatty acid um, molecules of triglyceride and VLDL. And you can see this uh, two-fold increase in de novo lipogenesis, the conversion of the ingested carbohydrate to fat. And when the liver is making more VL uh, fat, it's exported. And that results in this increase in triglycerides and this reduction in HDL. So conceptually, this is what's going on. So here is that quartile. This is one in four. So you look right, look left, look behind you. One of you is here. One of you is here. So this is common stuff. And this is where you want to be. This is the sensitive individual. So if you're sensitive, you take in your carbohydrate and your milkshake when you're eating your pizza or, or milkshake. And you're storing that carbohydrate glycogen. That's a good thing. 
If you're resistant, that one in four who has that block and transport, you can't get the glucose into muscle glycogen. The glucose goes to the liver, and again, the insulin's now three times higher uh, in the portal vein. That revs up all the enzymes, SRABP1, the master regulator of triglyceride lipogenesis, converts the glucose to fat. That results in increased plasma TGs, low HDL. This is your atherogenic dyslipidemia. If you don't watch yourself, this could lead to your first heart attack in your 50s, which is not a good thing. And in the long run, it's also going to lead to this, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we talked about is affecting one in three Americans uh, uh, currently. And we're going to lead to the leading cause of end-stage liver disease now that hepatitis C has been cured. So I want to leave on a high note. This is the bad news. Can we fix it? And the answer is yes. And so exercise. And so uh, if we're right, uh, exercise activates glucose transport through an AMPK uh, process and maybe other effects. We had shown years ago when you take these young, lean, insulin-resistant individuals with a family history of diabetes, this is that block and transport and insulin-stimulated glycogen synthesis. And we put these young, healthy, lean 20-year-olds on a treadmill, and after four to six weeks, we're able to fix insulin-stimulated muscle glycogen synthesis and fix that transport defect. And, and we found that even a single bout of intense exercise made a huge difference. So this is G6P. This is a readout of transport phosphorylation. This is the block I showed you before. These young 20-year-olds can't get activate in, insulin activation transport phosphorylation. And after just a single bout, the door is open. Tran the transporter is at the membrane. G6P comes up, so you can fix this uh, defect. And this probably has to do through, again, uh, exercise-induced uh, translocation, probably through an AMPK, at least dependent mechanism. And what we're able to show, taking these healthy insulin-resistant individuals, a single bout of exercise improved uh, glycogen synthesis after they ate the ingested the carb high-carbohydrate milkshake lowered uh, the uh, change in liver triglyceride, and lowered de novo lipogenesis. So the concept here is, again, this is further evidence uh, for this model, is you have this block here, exercise activates glucose getting into muscle glycogen, and then you, you shunt it here, less goes to liver, and you fix the problem of fatty liver and hyperlipidemia. So unfortunately, I don't have a pill yet, for exercise, we're working on it, but if we can get our folks to, of course, watch their weight, stay active, uh, this would be a wonderful thing for us, especially, I think, in our young pre-diabetic population. This is really who still have the ability to get out there and do this. This is really, again, when we see them, especially the family history, have high, high, high lipids, and uh, this would be a really uh, great thing to get them to do. So this is the last and most important slide, the people who did all the work. Uh, Max, who just uh, published that uh, IRK paper this week. Kit Peterson, who um, did really much all the human studies uh, that I got to speak to you about. Uh, the, our colleagues at the NIH, who we work with the uh, lipodystrophy patients, and uh, my colleague Doug Rothman in the Yale uh, MR Center. So I think we have some time for questions, and I'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Jerry did leave time for questions, so does anybody have a question? Just, you talk about the effects of exercise. Does that change both intracellular as well as extracellular liver fat? So, yeah, so this single bout is not changing any. It's probably just opening the door to transport. So what I didn't get into the details here is a single bout bypasses that block in PR3 kinase, again, through AMPK, and I'm sure Gus has more knowledge of this than, than, than I, but exercise will promote GLUT4 translocation, so you're, you're short-circuiting. You, you still may have fat in. It doesn't get rid of the one bout, the fat in the muscle. Chronic exercise will help alleviate, of course, ectopic fat. But what we showed here in this last study is just that was a single bout. Yes, sir. That was a beautiful talk, so thank you. If you were prescribing exercise to this population, yep. especially the younger, yep. for them, what's the dose of exercise? Yeah, that's always a question. What's the least amount I have to do to get the effect? I, all I, I, we haven't done those studies. And then the other question is, 
aerobic uh, versus um, uh, kind of anaerobic uh, uh, weights. I, I, what we did was three 15-minute bouts of exercise. So these are sedentary individuals. You can't just say 45 minutes because no one can do that. But three 15-minute bouts, this was 65% MVO2 max. And what that translates to is just breaking a little bit of a sweat after 15 minutes, um, heart rate maybe going up maybe 20 uh, beats per minute. Um, so that's sufficient to do it, whether you get around with less or whether it's better if you did kind of, you know, weightlifting, anaerobic exercise. If it's AMPK mediated, the effect on glucose would be predicted anaerobic should actually do that more than aerobic. Personally, what I like to advise my patient, I, anything they'll do, I'm happy with. Aerobic, again, is not only good for insulin sensitivity, it's good for heart and lungs. So I like to encourage uh, people to do aerobic, uh, you know, 30 minutes a day or something like that. I would guess 35, uh, 30, 30 to 45 minutes should be sufficient. Whether it's less, I don't know yet. Sure, there's a question in the front here. Yes. Yeah, so fasting. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, that's a very good question. We haven't studied this extensively. Uh, of course, with glycogen metabolism, of course, that disappears uh, with time. That we have done extended long-term fasting. Your glycogen and liver goes down and is pretty much gone by 48 hours. Fasting is a little bit complicated because if you're really truly fasting, actually fatty acids go up. Fatty acids come to the liver and actually can actually sometimes exacerbate fatty liver. So in my view, and we, we've done this in rodents more than we've done in humans, but I think it's an excellent question. In rodents, you actually, when you fast an animal, you actually promote liver fat deposition after an overnight fast. And so it, whether it happens in humans, um, I think remains to be seen. I think the healthiest thing getting at as a, the clinical relevance is I think the, the better thing we could do for our patients is not so much fasting, but it's hypocaloric feeding, which is a very different thing in my view. So I, I think fasting may actually exacerbate in some conditions fatty liver, whereas hypochloric feeding, you need some energy, and that keeps lipolysis down, keeps fatty acids from getting back to liver and coming, uh, making triglycerides. So it seems that you may have answered the question, do I exercise before or after I eat? I don't think, I ex anytime. <laughs> anytime. Again, I, for me, the, the biggest challenge is, I, to me, when, as, a, as, a, as a physician, I, I, to me, the most important thing for my patient is getting into something I like to do so they'll continue doing it. Because everyone, I tell them, stay active, and they all know they say, yeah, this is a good thing, I'm going to do it, doctor. They maybe do it for a week or two weeks, and then they stop. The most important is finding something they enjoy, they're going to do all the time, work into their schedule. Personally, I don't think it makes a difference. Uh, if, uh, it's more important to do it, whether it's before or after a meal. Personally, I like to do it after. Well, actually, no, actually, well, before or after. I think it doesn't make a difference. Even, but even though you just showed that it would decrease. Yes. Or it would optimizing. Yes, you know, I showed this, but there is a memory effect. When you exercise, the effect on glucose transport actually is long-lasting. That actually can last up to even 48 hours. So that exercise bat, once you've moved glute four there, it, it's a, it's a long-lived effect. Bill? Um, I have two questions. First yeah. of all, there's been a lot of interest in developing fatty acid synthase in the past. Yes, yeah. And what would happen, in your view, in these folks who have uh, deficient muscle uptake of glucose are shunting it to the liver where it's being converted into fatty acids if, if that was inhibited. So this is, that's just, uh, that's that's why that's not a favorite topic. I mean, you're talking about FAS in liver, to inhibit FAS in liver? Well, inhibit systemically. Yeah, I think, I think that's problematic because, again, energy has to go somewhere, and if it's not going, where, where will it go? I don't know. Um, I, it's not, that would not be my favorite target, as well as DGAT inhibition, that's the penultimate step, has nowhere to go. I, I, yesterday I spoke about my view is, is liver-targeted mitochondrial uncoupling and dissipating energy in a liver-specific manner. And so we have evidence in rodents and now we're in non-human primates. If you rev up just subtly energy uncoupling in liver, you get rid of fat in liver because it turns to heat. You, get, you burn the fat and uh, you can do it safely. So that's that's the direction we're going in. But I agree with you. I think FAS is not a good target. I'm wondering, are yeah. there populations that show major differences in DGAT to TAG, uh, the capacity to uh, form triglycerides? Yeah, not so much. Um, there are genetic forms of lipodystrophy in the Kennedy pathway. The ACPAT is the 
the one that's most commonly uh, hits. Actually, this has been in some of our Olympic athletes. Um, the, they're the sprinters, and they have the ACPAT the defect. They're actually lipodystrophic. And it's interesting, they're insulin resistant, and the insulin actually may help promote muscle growth. And they're, one, they're Olympic sprinters, and they actually have been diagnosed to have this form of genetic form of lipodystrophy due to a block in lipogenesis. I'm unaware of any, the DGAT knockout, if it's a homozygous, is lethal. So that's probably why we don't see any patients. We, we've knocked it out with an ASO and actually paradoxically get protection, well, as, as predicted, reduction in liver fat, but paradoxically DAGs are down and they're protected from hepatic insulin resistance because you shut down the entire lipogenic pathway. But the homozygous is lethal, that's why we don't see them. Yeah. So last question. Yes. Uh, what about the role of leptin and insulin in the system? The treatment? Yeah, no, so, you know, in Amgen, the big hope when it was first cloned, uh, what, almost 20 years ago, was uh, it was going to cure obesity, and the lesson is it did, did, did not, it failed. It did not, it went, that's why we, no one, the students don't know about it. We, we can't treat obesity with it. It does work. The, the one success with leptin is it's, it's the FDA is approved for the severe lipodystrophic. It does not work in partial lipodystrophy. The other rare situation where it's been very successful are these obese children who are leptin deficient. Again, this is one in a, maybe 100 million uh, children that Steve O'Reilly uh, discovered. And they are obese, they have no leptin, you give them leptin, you cure obesity. So in those two very rare conditions, leptin has been shown to work very well. Unfortunately, in the rest of us, we all have leptin, and obese individuals have more leptin. Giving more back does not help things, unfortunately. Yes, Lee, one more. Okay. Your uh, population of uh, insulin-resistant Yale students, yeah. is there a more of a family history of insulin yes. resistance? Yes. Type 2 diabetes, and is there any genomic insights? Yes. Or genome so, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so we've studied these young, lean, insulin resistant individuals. We find the ones with the family history actually have reduced mitofunction, whether that's genetically related or an acquired defect, we're still sorting through. I think part of it is actually acquired. I think insulin resistance can actually lead to some mito uh, dysfunction. But what's interesting, the genomic data have, have hit on this NET. It just came out in the last couple of years. And a paper that just came out in Cell Reports showed the NAT, this polymorphism, leads to reduced mitochondrial activity. And again, would fit in perfectly where, where again, inherited forms of mitochondrial function, not causing, but predisposing us to ectopic fat and insulin resistance. Well, I want to thank you for a great talk and uh, thank you. Thank you.